X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's Tuesday, May 26th. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. And today, back in the day, May 26th, 1928, Jansen Beach Amusement Park had its grand opening. They promoted, and I'm quoting, clear, sparkling water over one million gallons every eight hours will flow into the mammoth swimming pools, which are considered the finest in point of cleanliness and swimming and competition in America. They present in themselves a model for the nation to follow. The park also featured the Big Dipper roller coaster, the biggest of its kind in the West. It had a tilt-a-whirl and the scooter bumper cars. The park closed its doors after Labor Day weekend in 1970, a story for another day back in the day. Maybe Labor Day. One piece of good news of Portland not having a big amusement park is the summer we do so much community stuff. We've got to lead a league in street fairs, parades, food fests, and music festivals, plus our outdoors. And as we count pieces of good news to remember, we're pretty lucky to have among the greatest summers in the world. By the way, also today, back in the day, 1967, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band was released. Today on The Local, your quick six, a focus on worker safety with Kate Kay, and a post-election interview with Representative Rob Nose, House District 42. First up, today's Quick 6 local rundown. On Saturday, the Supreme Court of Oregon overruled the Baker City Court and sided with the governor's coronavirus orders, at least for now. Last week, a group of churches had challenged Brown's executive orders that mandated social distancing and required some businesses to close. And Judge Matthew Shirtcliffe of the Baker County Circuit Court sided with the churches ruled that Brown had exceeded her authority in the length of the pandemic-related orders. The Oregon Supreme Court had recently issued a temporary injunction against Shirtcliffe's order, and now the court has clarified that Judge Matthew Shirtcliffe faces three choices. One, he can vacate his earlier ruling to invalidate Brown's orders. That is, he can make sure that Brown's orders are, in fact, enforced. Second, he can argue further before the Oregon's high court about why that ruling was correct or third, he could do nothing, in which case litigation will continue at the circuit court level. Thankfully, the number of Oregonians who have died from COVID-19 is unchanged from Sunday. The death toll now remains at 148. The reported case load is now almost 4,000. It's 3,949. And Clark County in Washington has stepped back from its request to move to Washington's phase two of reopening. The decision comes after a COVID-19 outbreak at a fruit packing plant led to a surge in cases there. Clark County had applied to ease coronavirus restrictions on Friday, just hours before news emerged at least 38 workers of the Firestone Pacific Foods had tested positive for COVID-19. In addition to Clark County, Catitas County's application to enter Phase 2 was put on hold Saturday, also because of an outbreak. Clackamas County here in Oregon began reopening its restaurants, bars, salons, gyms, and retail businesses on Saturday. This makes Washington and Multnomah counties the only Oregon counties that haven't entered Phase 1 of Brown's framework. On Friday, Washington County did apply to enter Phase 1. Multnomah County has yet to apply. According to the Oregonian, nearly half of the Oregon counties that have reopened have been unable to meet public health benchmarks they need to remain open. And at least five counties have seen a resurgence of COVID-19. That might be why Multnomah County isn't in a huge rush to apply for Phase 1 reopening. And meanwhile, Portland firefighters are getting fewer medical phone calls, an 18% drop compared to April last year. Speculation analysis suggesting there's more judicious use of 911 and people not wanting to be with medical professionals unless they really need it. Some dim news. Wong's King Seafood is closed after 15 years on Southeast Division Street. The restaurant helped rewrite the map for Chinese food in Portland. 
It was born out of a small chain of American-style Chinese restaurants with locations in Sandy, Gresham, and Southeast Portland. According to a review in the Oregonian back in 2005, it was bankrolled by untold thousands of orders of Kung Pao chicken. It had opened just a year before in 2004, part of a wave of Chinese restaurants to open up in Southeast Portland, along 82nd Avenue and nearby. Just before it opened, the restaurant got an early boost when Andy and Fule Wong won gold medals at the 5th China International Cooking Contest in China. And in 2010, Wong's King Seafood was named the third best Chinese restaurant in America by Chinese Restaurant News Magazine. I must admit, I've never subscribed to the magazine, but I'm glad somebody's keeping track. Wong's King did get a $10,000 relief grant from the city of Portland in March. In a bankruptcy filing, though, on May 13th, the restaurant claimed debts of more than a half million dollars, $555,000 plus, against assets of about $33,000. Pouring one out for Wong's King, thank you for all the wonderful meals, including a wonderful Christmas Eve dinner surrounded by many, many people. Back in the day when we could be surrounded by many, many people. Joe Ray Perkins is the Republican nominee for the U.S. Senate from Oregon, and she's been a promoter of the QAnon conspiracy. And last week, she defended her interest in QAnon. This is the nest of conspiracists whose rantings led to the Pizzagate host. This is when Edgar Welch walked into the Comet Ping Pong Pizza Parlor with his AR-15 rifle and fired rounds into a door lock to find not a Hillary Clinton-led child sex ring, but rather a small storage closet. Well, a week ago, Joe Ray Perkins easily won the Republican primary against other little-known challengers, will now be pitted against Democratic Senator incumbent Jeff Merkley. Perkins said in an interview that she regretted allowing her campaign consultants to take down a video she posted on primary election night Tuesday in which she praised QAnon and said, I stand with Q and the team. Perkins' post on election night video got national attention in The New York Times, Washington Post, The Guardian. She then took it down, said it was because of campaign consultants, And then later did an interview saying, am I bummed that I took it down? Yeah, I am really bummed. But I also hired a consultant whose job it is to protect me. And what a job that must be. Perkins says she goes to QAnon message boards as a source of information, I'm quoting. She also said it wasn't the only source of inspiration information for her, saying she also relies on the Bible and an online course from the ultra-conservative Hillsdale College. As background on this, in case you've missed it, one FBI report said QAnon had also inspired domestic terror threats, including one involving a man arrested in 2018 for planning a bomb attack on the Illinois state capitol. The movement was started by someone posting under the letter Q, claiming to have inside knowledge of high-level conspiracies aimed at taking over governments and major businesses, while also alleging prominent Democratic figures run pedophilia rings. Remember to vote! And here in the Oregon State Senate, Democrats have chosen Lake Oswego lawmaker Rob Wagner as their new majority leader. He replaces Ginny Burdick, who did win a sixth Senate term on Tuesday, but will not be coming back as majority leader. Burdick announced she wanted to become the Senate's revenue chair. She says she wants to address inequities in Oregon's property tax system. We'll see what happens there. Rob Wagner was recently made the majority whip since the end of 2018, was also the chair of the Senate Education Committee. For a bit of background... Rob worked with the American Federation of Teachers, AFT, where he organized teachers, faculty, and healthcare workers. And with that background, he's thought to be more labor-friendly than Jenny Burdick. And elsewhere in the state Senate, State Senator Shamia Fagan is now Oregon's Democratic candidate to become the next Secretary of State. After the election night post, when the Oregonian posted Dewey beats Truman. No, actually, they just posted that Mark Hass was going to get elected. And then flipping that the next day, and now State Senator Mark Hass has conceded. A reminder that Oregon Secretary of State is charged with overseeing elections, auditing, business registrations, also the state archive. Secretary of State is also the first in line to assume the governorship if the elected governor can no longer serve in the role, such as if she were to get appointed by President Joe Biden.
And lest that seem like a rare occurrence, a reminder that when Governor Kitzhaber stepped aside in 2015, then Secretary of State Kate Brown became the governor. And she's the governor now. And then Governor Kate Brown got to appoint her successor. She picked Republican Bev Clarno. He needed to be in the same political party as Secretary of State Dennis Richardson, who had passed away. Shamia Will now face another state senator, Republican Kim Thatcher of Kaiser, who won the Republican primary on Tuesday. And another piece of political news, signatures have been submitted for the Oregon measure to decriminalize psilocybin, a.k.a. shrooms. Initiative Petition 34 would create a new program with the Oregon Health Authority. It would allow the licensed manufacturer, delivery, and administration of psilocybin, that is, the active ingredient psychedelic mushrooms. Organizers for the Psilocybin Service Initiative turned in more than 133 signatures. That's 18% more than required to account for duplicates or errors. The discussion here is whether or not psilocybin has any medicinal value. It is a Schedule One drug. It has been since the 1970s, meaning federal regulators have not thought it had any medicinal value. Oregon's maximum security prison in Salem is now officially the site of the state's biggest single coronavirus outbreak. The number of coronavirus cases continues to rise the Oregon State Penitentiary. On Friday, the Department of Corrections said a total of 141 people in the prison, 115 inmates and 26 workers have tested positive. A Southeast Portland nursing home is the second biggest outbreak. It might now be the biggest, except it got closed down. Four inmates have been treated with the disease at local hospitals, including one man who died on Wednesday. Dr. Christopher DiGiulio, the chief of medicine for the Corrections Department, said inmates' movements within the prison are restricted to contain the spread. Built in 1866, the building, a big complex of imposing cell blocks, was not designed with a pandemic in mind, said DiGiulio. Correction officials had been moving almost all infected inmates to Coffee Creek in Wilsonville, where the infirmary is equipped with rooms that limit that air circulation. But the rising number of cases there has prompted the agency to stop that practice. Does everybody know this? One of the big problems with a lot of industrial buildings is the HVAC system, which can recirculate the air. So if there's dirty air somewhere, it ends up dirty air another place and just keep recirculating the same air. And in a state pen, you're not opening up the windows all the time. And shout out to the Stewart family. Traditionally, the Boy Scouts place nearly 140,000 flags at Willamette National Cemetery every Memorial Day. But that got canceled this year. So the Stewart family organized a planting of 3,000 flags yesterday. Also, the U.S. Forest Service has begun restoring access to developed recreational sites that were temporarily closed in March. On Friday, most of the Pacific Northwest Region National Forest will begin to restore access to recreational sites, Forest Service roads, trails, and dispersed areas. Hunting and fishing are allowed in undeveloped areas in accordance with state law and if the area is not affected by a closure order. The Columbia River Gorge National Scenic Area will remain closed to most hiking trails, parks, and waterfalls. Gifford Pinchot will restore access to developed day-use and trailhead sites. Deschutes National Forest will open most developed day-use recreation sites and boat ramps, but all campgrounds remain closed. Dispersed camping is still allowed. Mounted National Forest developed recreational sites such as trailheads, campgrounds, boat ramps, picnic areas, off-highway vehicle areas remain closed. Mount Hood National Forest, all those things remain closed for now. Willamette National Forest will reopen most trailheads, boat launches, and developed recreational sites. They will be accessible with limited access. Twilliger Hot Springs and Fall Creek Trail remain closed. Cyuslaw National Forest is going to reopen many sites, most national forest boat ramps, day-use sites and trailheads, some off-highway vehicle staging areas in the Oregon dunes will be available for day use with limited or no services. Umatilla National Forest will now offer access to trailheads, snowparks, boat ramps, and day-use areas. Umatilla National Forest will not be reopening its developed campgrounds or its cabin rentals. Those are staying closed. Happy beginning sort of of summer. That's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. 
On Wednesday and Friday, the X-Ray Digital House Show series continues. May 27th, Ages and Ages. May 29th, Ila Bamba. Both of those start at 7 p.m. You can check them out on Facebook, on YouTube, and at xray.fm. And here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. First up, Kate K with a continued focus on safety protocols for workers. In Portland and across the country, businesses have begun monitoring worker health in response to COVID-19. But the goals of government and public health often differ from those of corporations. X-ray reporter Kate K talked to Mary Gray, a labor and technology expert and author of Ghost Work, about the implications of health monitoring in the workplace. In response to the COVID-19 pandemic, workplaces across the country have been outfitted with all sorts of health monitoring devices. Thermal cameras that measure workers' body temperatures are popping up in manufacturing plants, shipping centers, even fast food places. As reported for X-Ray recently, right here in the Portland area, Amazon has installed thermal temperature scanners in its Troutdale Fulfillment Center. The temperature scanning devices are usually set up on tripods at worker entrances. Reports say the company is using them at some Amazon and Whole Foods locations elsewhere too. High body temperature is an indicator of COVID-19, so the idea is to identify whether someone might have it. Amazon also recently introduced COVID-19 testing in local facilities for some workers and has suggested such testing could become a regular thing. But as the pandemic inspires corporations to expand health monitoring of employees and contract workers, it raises a variety of important questions about public health policy and our country's piecemeal approach to healthcare, about corporate health benefits, the role of corporations in public health, and about worker surveillance. Mary Gray thinks about this stuff a lot. Gray is the author of Ghost Work. It's a book about the often ignored human labor force propelling success of tech giants like Google and Uber and, yes, Amazon. She's also faculty affiliate at Harvard University's Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society and a senior principal researcher at Microsoft Research. As a Microsoft employee, you know, she'll be the first to tell you she's got top-notch health insurance benefits. And that's worth noting, because in many ways, the entanglement of healthcare and work in the United States is at the core of the discussion around worker health monitoring in this country. Here's Gray. We have been steeped in this belief that healthcare is a nice-to-have Um, that, you know, you get it when you find a really good job and you get a good job when you deserve it. So in other words, Americans are accustomed to the notion that it's our jobs that provide access to health care rather than, say, institutions like government. But the goals of government and public health often differ from those of corporations. And that chasm has been made glaringly apparent during this public health crisis. So let's take the case of monitoring worker body temperatures in the Amazon Fulfillment Center right here near Portland. The company may simply want to identify sick workers, but companies have no state or federal mandates to provide health care or treatment if someone is sick. Grace says this creates a conflict of interest. In a company that is monitoring health but does not have a very clear obligation that's legally binding them to care for that individual as their employee. This is the place where it's like there's such a conflict of interest for a company 
should be invested in identifying workers because the public health need here is to identify who's sick and care for them. A company's need is to identify who's sick and get rid of them. So there's the detachment of identifying who's sick from caring for them is what's broken here. Sure. Business owners want to protect the people who work for them. But, says Gray, merely monitoring for indications of illness leaves out the steps necessary to public health, like medical treatment. And it's nice to imagine a company is going to take care of them. But at the end of the day, what do they want more than anything? Identify who's sick and get them out of the workplace. So it's corporations that are protecting themselves, but that, that in the long run does not protect public health. The CDC recently provided guidance suggesting that businesses consider conducting daily health checks like temperature screening of employees. And businesses are responding by diving in to invest in new health monitoring devices, software, supplies. So we might expect that using them could become a regular part of the workday for all sorts of people long after the pandemic subsides. Monitoring worker health not only poses all sorts of risks to privacy and security of personal health and medical information, it also has broad implications when it comes to equity for workers. Gray suggests that while management or executives with job protection and decent health insurance coverage might appreciate regular health checks, those same daily temperature screenings or regular tests could negatively affect contract workers or other more vulnerable people with less job security or limited medical treatment options. They could lead to penalties such as time off without pay or worse, job loss. Gray. The less job security you have, the less comfortable it is to be monitored because odds are really good that monitoring is going to be used against you. The biggest challenge is that for many workers who feel comforted by monitoring, they're not thinking about who might feel uncomfortable with being monitored, who might feel stigmatized. Still, while businesses taking on even more responsibility or control over the health of workers raises all sorts of concerns, Gray says there could be a role for workplaces in the spectrum of public health management. There is a role for workplaces in the same way that there's a role for school campuses to play in facilitating public health. It doesn't have to be either or. And right now we're kind of stuck in this sense that uh, it's either got to be the workplace monitoring workers or it's got to be a public hospital monitoring sick people. There's a lot of ground to cover in between. Ultimately, says Gray, the pandemic has spotlighted the disparities and flaws of a health system tethered to work here in the U.S. We're in the middle of a global public health crisis. It should not be a matter of whether a company is nice enough to offer health care. It's been literally just a, a fire waiting to rampage. You know, the, the pandemic is showing that healthcare is a public and economic necessity. It's not a nice to have. So even long after the first wave of COVID-19 dissipates and long after there's a reliable vaccine, we will likely still grapple with the implications of business filling the gaps in our management of public health. In Portland, I'm Kate Kay for X-Ray.fm. 
House Representative Rob Nose of House District 42 won his race on Election Day. He's back to discuss reflections on his campaign, on the election, and what's next for legislators in Salem. Coming at you live, State Representative Rob Nose, who handily won his race in House District 42 after facing his first, I think it's fair to say, strong challenger since you initially won, yes. the, seat, initially won the seat in 2014. Rob, congratulations and thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Were you ever scared scared during this race? Um, scared's a strong word, but I was certainly anxious and nervous. Um, Paige Kreisman was a very smart and credible opponent, and she really forced me to get out there and campaign and reintroduce myself to my voters and remind them about my record. And anytime you, um, you know, she garnered endorsements from folks that, uh, from organizations, unions that used to be supporters of mine. And so, you know, that was certainly a disappointment and made me anxious as well. But um, I think at the end of the day, I was able to remind voters of my record and that, you know, in spite of my vote to rein in the cost of PERS, I've been a progressive champion for lots of things that uh, working families in this area of the world care about. So You started to answer it already, but what did happen there? On Tuesday, the Oregonian headline said, Rob Nose defeats challenger for a southeast Portland seat after being abandoned by unions. You came from the labor movement. So I wasn't completely abandoned. I kept my own, the union that I work for, Oregon Nurses Association, stood by me. I also got the endorsement of the United Food and Commercial Workers. And I think, you know, having the support of um, two unions that are really on the front lines right now of what we're experiencing with COVID-19, um, those endorsements certainly didn't hurt my reelection, along with the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, Planned Parenthood, um, Basic Rights Oregon, you know, these are important organizations to voters in this district. And, you know, I, I hope to get back in the good graces of the of the public sector labor movement. I care a lot about workers and the services that they provide. And, you know, hopefully now we can try to move on and get past it. So we're talking about uh, SEIU, OEA, AFSCME, and AFT. Uh, Yes, so SEIU stayed out of the race. They just decided not to endorse or, um, so they never opposed me, but they never helped me either, unfortunately. And AFSCME put in a couple grand, but could have gone bigger. Uh, uh, OEA and AFT, what happened there? Well, so OEA actually provided the uh, largest contribution uh, to my opponent that she received. The Portland Association of Teachers uh, not only endorsed her, but donated uh, $10,000 to her race. And we were talking to Joe Basler of AFSCME about Mark Hass's race and now Shamia Fagan's race. He was saying, listen, it wasn't yeah, all... Yeah, isn't that exciting, right? It's really interesting. It, it, it sure it, is. It, our support for uh, Shamia, our opposition to Mark Hass, wasn't just about the PERS vote. It was also about, you know, sort of a long-standing record of not knowing uh, where he stood on our issues. Uh, for you, do you think that uh, OEA and AFT and AFSCME going for Paige Christman was almost entirely about the purse vote? That's what they pretty much intimated. I, I hope that was the case. Um, you know, and I, I understand the significance of that vote as a union person. You know, I've bargained retirement benefits in the private sector, so I, I get it. Um, I, think, I think that's the only um, anti-union vote, you know, in terms of the AFL-CIO scorecard or any other union scorecard that I've ever taken. And, 
you know, I could make an argument that that was a vote in some ways to stabilize that pension and save it, but we can save that for another day. Well, I don't know, because in another day we might want to be talking about other topics. So I think that's an interesting argument. Do you think that there was too... Uh, what do you think the right move for public labor would have been in this case? And and you have these options, right? You have well, the, the oh, you have the uh, yeah. ONA option. That's really of, hard to say, Jefferson. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, um, the House Democrats, we think we um, put a bill in place that preserved the pension, um, put some cost-saving measures in place, allowed us to, you know, sort of amortize our debt, which is a fancy way of saying take out a longer mortgage on some of our long-term costs with Tier 1, Tier 2 employees. And then, yes, asked for a little bit of contribution from the 401K portion of public sector workforce's retirement benefit to shore up the pension so that the pension was protected. And we asked for more of a contribution from Tier 1, Tier 2 PERS employees because that pension is richer. And then once that is paid off, then we're back to a stable system that is a solid retirement benefit that will help us attract and retain a workforce and is still sustainable that the state and public sector entities will be able to afford. What happens now in terms of caucus dynamics in labor? Back in the day, presumably now as well, uh, you know, Tina would talk about uh, OEA, SAU, and AFSME, and, and maybe a lesser degree AFT back then, uh, as our partners. I and mean, she would just say, oh, well, what do our partners think on this issue? What do our partners think on that issue? And it was very clear what that meant. Everybody knew what was, uh, what was meant when she said that. What are the dynamics now after that first vote? I mean, it was one vote. It, it well, also yielded a billion dollars in revenue. Yeah. I think politically um, those folks are still our partners, at least, you know, ideologically, um, in terms of the things that, that House Democrats care about. Whether or not they're going to help us in this next election cycle, I don't know yet. It's too early to say. But um, I think we're going to have some very tough choices about budgets and policy in light of COVID-19 and the recession. And if you go by stereotype that you believe that Democrats are more willing to try to raise taxes, and we may need to raise some taxes and fees to try to get through this recession, get folks that are still working financially okay to pay a little bit more so we have a social service safety net and schools funded, then hopefully the public sector labor movement will come back to Democrats, even those of us that took a, a vote they don't like on retirement, because they know by stereotype we'll support tax increases even in a recession uh, so that we can shore up our budgets and have the services we need. Your voice lit up when I brought up the Secretary of State's race and we went to bed on Tuesday night with the Oregonian calling it for calling it prematurely for uh, Mark Hass and we went to bed last night with the Oregonian calling it for Shavia Fagan. Uh, what were some of your reflections on the Secretary of State's race? Well, it's funny because I feel like my reflections were wrong. Um, you know, I was tempted to say on Wednesday, had you called me, I would have said, you know, perhaps having two women in the race uh, is what made it hard for Shamia to get across the finish line. If there'd only been, you know, her versus Mark, that would have made it a little bit, the dynamic more different. Um, would it have been a signal that um, the public sector labor movements you know, strong investment in Shamia's candidacy ended up being a negative if the public had a negative reaction to that. 
but I think everything has changed uh, this morning. And so that whole analysis that I was engaging in 24 hours ago doesn't seem to make any sense. Um, yeah, you change a few you know, thousand votes, and all of a sudden it feels like all the physics has changed. The physics might be somewhat similar, it's just you know where the floor was is different. I mean, you know, I, um, Shmia and Mark Hass are both friends of mine. Um, I think either one of them uh, would have made a fine, will make a fine candidate uh, to go up against Kim Thatcher uh, in the November election. Um, I've worked with both those people. I don't know Jamie McLeod Skinner as well. She did concede the race, so she's, she's not in it at this point. I mean, um, you know, and she would have been an interesting candidate. I mean, I think part of, for me, um, what I like about either a Fagan or a Haas uh, candidacy going forward is because I think having some experience in Salem is pretty important in that role and we all know that the Secretary of State in Oregon is Lieutenant Governor. Do you buy into any of the scuttlebutt that Kate Brown might be shuffling off prior to the end of her term and therefore the next Secretary of State is likely to be the next Governor? Um, you know, Governor Brown and I visit periodically but we've never talked about that so I couldn't even begin to speculate. So far, I have, I have found who I believe might be rumor starters on both rumors. And so one was running for the U.S. Senate, the other was Secretary of the Interior. And so I don't, I, I tend to think more rumor, that more smoke than fire. But, I, you know, what the heck do I know? I mean, you know, she's, she, she's termed out as governor. She can't run again. Right. Um, you know, would it be an exciting challenge? She's still pretty young, um, you know, to run a big... Um, department under a Democratic president, you know, maybe, maybe she'd like to be an ambassador. I don't know. We have never, her and I have never speculated about what she does next after being governor. And I suspect if you got her on your show right now, she'd say it's all COVID-19 all the time. And she's not really focused on that super much right now. Campaign finance reform has been in the news for now, you know, well over a year. Supreme Court made its decision saying it's allowed now. The legislature will be facing at least in some way, even if decide not to face it. Uh, it is more in uh, the issue might be in more high relief now, not only with what happened with the Portland uh, Portland mayor's race, uh, but also what happened with that secretary of state's race where Shamia got, what, three quarters of a million dollars from three or four organizations uh, to to eke out the win over Mark Cass in the Democratic primary. Uh, the key question there, one key question is anything to be able to happen in this session. Another key question is... Yes. we. I mean, assuming the constitutional measure that's on the ballot in November passes, uh, we will pass some sort of campaign finance reform limitation of some kind, I would say, in the 2021 session. The, the potential bad news about that is so much... Uh, it, is if you do a crappy bill, I don't mean you, but if a crappy bill is yeah, if a crappy bill is done, it makes it a lot harder to do a better bill, right? And passing something at the ballot, heck, the last thing that the last thing that was on the ballot that was a statute, even though it's oh, received some criticism, right, 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 right. that that all um, that also passed. Yeah. And so the question is, how do you make sure it's a great bill? And for you, what's the definition of a great bill? Does it mean unlimited well, contributions here, to labor? This is this would be a fun topic for another conversation, Jefferson, like a different time on your show. But um, I, being an elected official who's been in office for quite a while, I take a little bit more of a nuanced view about campaign finance reform because you're not really going to get money out of politics. 
um, our United States Supreme Court has really made that abundantly clear. And so the challenge is, if you have limits that are too low, too strong, um, then entities that have money, um, they'll just spend it independently of your campaign. And maybe you and I make an agreement that we're not going to be, we're not going to negatively campaign. You know, you're not going to bring up my, uh, you know, prior DUI in my youth, okay? And, um, but, but our, my, your supporters don't care about that, you know? Or they make a decision that they're going to reveal that anyway because they know it's good, it's good fodder and it'll make it so that you, you know, have a better chance of winning your election. So that's part of our challenge with campaign finance reform is how do we do it in a way that people that can spend their money independently of campaigns don't feel incentivized to do so, and so that campaigns still retain some control of their message and how they want to run. It's very tricky. It is really tricky. I agree that it's really tricky. And one of the things I wrestle with is whether, and it's sort of like, would you rather the that ally sort of be in the tent coordinating or out of the tent doing what they do? One argument potentially for having them out of the tent is maybe they don't have quite as much expectation to be inside the tent when a decision is being made that would benefit their them financially. Yeah, it seems really esoteric. No, I, uh, let, let me make it less esoteric. If you're coordinating all the time, and we know right now that the folks who run the campaigns, who kick in the dough, really like being in the room. And they like being in the room not only so they, they can make campaign decisions, they like to be in the room so that the candidates are in the habit of listening to them, so the candidates are in the habit of saying yes to what they say. If they're not in the room, I think it might change that dynamic at least a little bit. Yeah. But if I know that somebody has donated a ton of money on the side to help get me across the table, even if I didn't coordinate that with them, I still know it. We also, though, and it'd be good to look at that. I'd be interested in looking at that and maybe sharing it back and forth because we also know that expenditures, I mean, our races are, in fact, more expensive than other states, even if you include independent expenditures. So it's not yeah. like when, when I, mean, I would say that the donor does think they're getting some value giving it to the candidate that they see is more valuable than just spending independently. There's some people who spend independently, but that ability to go to you and say, hey, here's a check. They like the idea of handing you that check because they like the relationship that builds. They like the access they think that earns because we know that spending in other states is less than in ours. Yeah. Well, yeah, other states have contribution limits. So contribution limits will matter. Yes, absolutely. Do you think one of the challenges, and, and very often the move then is, well, okay, you put in some limits, and one of the reasons to put in limits is to make it more fundable, more affordable to be able to put in public finance. If we're having this discussion in the middle of a global pandemic, do you think there's any possibility of having a discussion of publicly financed elections? No. Yeah. I mean, honestly, Jefferson, like if I have a choice of saying, here's $10 million or actually, you know, probably it's more like 20 or $30 million for publicly financed election, some hybrid of you have to solicit donations and you get a match, okay, or $30 million that I can use to keep tuition low yeah. or make sure that buildings get cleaned and the janitors that are doing that work have health insurance in this climate, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to choose that. Well, that will be the debate to come. Anything I should have asked you that I didn't? Oh, I'm sure there is. <laughs> <laughs> I, hope we, uh, I hope we will get a chance to talk. Go ahead, go ahead. 
It'll be interesting to see if we do any policy uh, in the special session. Oh, I need to ask you about that. We just stick to budget. Oh, I need to ask you about that. Has a has a date been? Do you have a scuttlebutt on when no, the date's going to be? No, yeah. that's that's being hotly uh, negotiated between the governor and the Senate president and the speaker. What's so the range? What's the time range, as far as you know? Well, I think the governor wants to, us, to, the the budget committee, to examine what across the board cuts would look like, and then have a sort of working plan that she can sort of hear about and review. And so I think. You know, I'm hoping mid-June. Rob Nose, thank you so much for coming on. I hope, as you yeah, said... Yeah, anytime. When, yeah, when things clarify, we'll have a chance to do it again. Okay. Thanks for having me, Jefferson. State Representative Nose, congratulations and thanks for your service. Thanks to Kate and to Rob for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. And a reminder to vote in the Best of Portland poll. Shout out to Eyes on Broadway. They've been supporters of X-Ray for a long, long time. We can be together while we're apart. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay safe, stay connected, and thank you, democracy. X-Ray.